I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, welcome to Horse Hour. Now, at this point, I normally say I'm Amy Stevenson, but today I'm saying I'm Mrs. Amy Frost because I got married at the weekend and I promise I won't bore you with all the details, um, but it was a truly, truly magical day. And of course, I had lots and lots of horsiness involved in the wedding. I can't wait to share the whole story with you, but I'm just about to go on to honeymoon and uh, I really wanted to bring you the latest podcast episode with Imogen Johns. So when I get back from honeymoon, I will share lots more photos with you and videos you can see everything that went on because I had four gorgeous Frisian stallions and um, we had a carousel a Victorian carousel with horses and there were little bits that I wanted to put into the wedding about military horses um, so I researched for the wedding all these facts about military horses which I found completely fascinating so I'm going to share those with you in the meantime you can see some of the photos and there's a few videos of the gorgeous Frisian stallions on our Twitter page if you just head to at horse hour and our Instagram and Facebook too but now back to the good stuff today's episode is with Imogen Johns from B&W Equine Vets and we're talking wobblers and neck arthritis uh, it's a problem that I only heard about a few weeks ago when one of our brilliant horse hour followers and listeners is concerned that her horse might have this disease so Imogen's going to help us out and explain all about it this is horse hour How are you, Imogen? I'm very well, thank you. Oh, I hear a little accent from you there. <laughs> yeah, where where are you from originally? I'm originally from Australia, um, which is where I did my veterinary training. But I have a mix of accents, having spent six years in America doing my specialty training and then being in the UK for the last 10 years. Wow. Where did, when you made the move from Australia to America, was it then that you decided straight away you wanted to work in the UK? Um, no, I originally planned on going back to Australia, actually. Um, so, <laughs> but I've ended up here. I actually grew up as a, as, a, as a youngster in the New Forest, which is where my horsey thing started. So coming to the UK was almost like coming home. Oh, the New Forest is a beautiful part of the world. It's where I'm from. Ah, oh, amazing. So did you have to look after, did you end up looking after the New Forest wild ponies? 
Uh, well, I was only a little youngster then, so I just <laughs> patted them and admired them from a distance and asked my mother repeatedly for a pony. Oh, so when you then moved, you know, decided that you were going to um, be a vet in, mm. in, you know, in the UK, which college did you go to? So I had done my training at Sydney University um, and then when I moved to the UK uh, 10 years ago, I got a job at the Royal Veterinary College, which is where I was until um, January of this year. Wow. What's it like there? I imagine all these super intelligent people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit scary sometimes, um, but it's, it's a terrific place to, to work. And um, yeah, there were definitely um, a, a large number of people doing amazing research and lots of cl- terrific clinical work as well so yeah it was an excellent place to work do you know I feel like I, f- I feel like they're a bit of a parent like we've got these people that we can turn to who behind the scenes are working on so much research and, and finding mm. out how we can improve the health of our horses and it's only since doing these podcasts that we found out some of the research that's taking place like you know the stem cell surgery and you know all these magnificent things and I, I'm just relieved that they're doing it I think it's amazing yeah, it is an interesting thing. I mean, uh, 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 quite a lot of people are questionable about research, but I think they sort of misunderstand what research is actually aiming to do. And it's always for the, you know, trying to find better things for horses. So, uh, mm. yeah, research is is a really important thing, um, not just for universities, but quite a lot of research occurs in private practices like BMW. Oh, yeah, because we forget that a lot of unis do the research themselves, don't they? Mm, absolutely. So, yeah, it's a it's a, often a combination um, project between um, the the private practices that end up seeing a lot of the patients and the universities that um, either come up with the ideas or or are able to implement the research itself. Mm. Oh, one day I would love to go and see how they do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can organise that. Did, did you do any research? Yeah, I did quite a lot of research. I've got um, sort of varying interests and and my research always um, came about by a case that was puzzling me or a disease condition that we didn't really have all the answers to. And so I would try and design a project, mostly looking back at all the cases that we'd had and seeing if I could answer the question um, that I had based on those particular um, cases that had been seen in the hospital. Mm. And did you find anything? Yeah, I found various different things, actually. One of the ones that was most interesting to me was about horses with liver disease. Um, And I was always taught that when you take a liver biopsy, um, which helps to diagnose and and make a prognosis, um, that you need to always test whether the horse can clot its blood. um, Mm. Because, of course, the liver has lots of blood vessels in it. But it also makes all the clotting factors that are important. So if you have a horse that has liver disease, it might be more at risk of actually having a bleeding episode associated with the biopsy. So I looked back at all our records, um, looked at all the clotting profiles, and then looked to see with whether horses that had clotting abnormalities actually had a problem after their biopsy. Um, and I couldn't show any correlation between the two. So now um, my routine procedure is not to do that clotting profile um, in horses who are about to have a biopsy. Wow. And is that just for you or has that gone out to other vets uh, too? Yeah, no, most most people are pretty happy with that approach now. Oh, that's amazing. Well done, you. <laughs> Thank you. I guess the, the, the fascination with it comes from your passion as well, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I think that vets in general are very inquisitive people. Um, and so they're always trying to answer questions and um, 
you know, some things are on an individual horse basis. Well, let's try this treatment. Um, but other times you need a lot more information. And that's when you start doing the sort of bigger research projects. Mm. Well, I have lots of questions for you, which I can't <laughs> answer. So I'm All hoping right. you can help us. So the, 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 this, this one that we're talking about today that I'd like to start with is wobblers. Yeah. And that's because um, on our Twitter hour on a Monday night between eight and nine, one of our followers asked a question about wobblers and how do we know how she's worried that her horse has it. And okay. I'd never heard of the condition before. So can you start by explaining to us what is wobblers? Sure. Um, well, wobblers is a very general term, which basically is a descriptive term of what a horse looks like when it has a number of different conditions. Um, the, the sort of classic wobblers syndrome that we associate with the term is um, a disease, uh, it's a developmental disease of horses that we see mostly in thoroughbreds and sometimes in warm bloods. Um, and as the name implies, it's a disease that results in wobbliness. So mm. the horses kind of look a little bit drunk. Um, so they don't necessarily know where their feet are. Um, they can look weak as well. And it's um, a result of compression of the spinal cord due to abnormally formed vertebra. So then the bones in the neck are abnormally formed. And as a result, they squash the spinal cord which means that the messages that should normally travel down the spinal cord and up the spinal cord aren't able to do that. And the result is a wobbler. Oh, gosh. And I've seen pictures and videos of these horses mm. that they can stand on their front two legs, but they, mm. it's almost like they can't lift their back legs up properly. Yeah, there's varying degrees of severity. So when we talk about wobbliness, the technical term that we use is something called ataxia. Um, and that's just um, es essentially incoordination. Um, and we grade the level of ataxia from five, which is the very worst, where horses can't actually stand up, mm. um, to zero being completely normal. Um, and as you go through the grades, obviously you've got worse and worse um, ability to do what a horse normally needs to do um, in its daily life. And um, luckily, most horses with wobblers aren't as severely affected as, as you described. So most most of them, um, at least in my practice, would tend to be somewhere around a grade two. Um, so you can see that there's something wrong, but actually they are able to walk and trot and do those sorts of things. They're just not quite as coordinated as they should be. Mm. And is this when you, you notice that the horses tend to fall or trip a lot? Yeah, so stumbling and tripping is certainly one of the early signs. Um, and, you know, a normal horse can do that. So I don't want everyone to think that <laughs> every horse that stumbles and trips is, is, a, is a wobbler. Um, but because they don't necessarily, they aren't getting the messages from their limbs um, and able to travel them up to the spinal cord and then back down again, so those messages aren't being transmitted effectively, they don't necessarily compensate for changes in the um, surface that they're on um, and as a result, they can trip. Um, they can trip over themselves sometimes. Um, and, you know, otherwise what, what would be a normally flat surface kind of appears irregular to them. Mm. Is that OK? So is this something that you generally see when the horses are foals or could you take on a horse that may be six years old? Could the yeah. condition get worse as they get older? Yeah, so if we go back to what we were discussing originally, wobblers is a very generalized descriptive term mm. for a problem with the spinal cord. And so the developmental disease 
you would typically see when the horse is a youngster. Um, and although the, the changes to the vertebra would certainly be present as a foal, uh, because the vertebra and the bones in the rest of the body do change with age, um, you can start to see signs um, and they can be relatively severe signs for the first time when the horse is perhaps two. And that might correspond to when it's starting to be broken in. So it might have been turned out in a field and nobody's really paid much attention to it because it's just a, a youngster running around and occasionally it falls down. But once they start to observe it more closely, they see the signs, whereas actually it's been there for, for a long time. Mm. So that's the developmental disease. But there is another subsection of wobblers that we see that, that's actually due to arthritis in the neck. Um, and that you would see in an older horse, not necessarily a horse in its 20s, um, but a horse perhaps seven, eight um, plus years old. Um, and in that situation, it's actually the joint between each vertebra. So there are seven vertebra in the neck um, and there are joints between those. Um, and arthritis is just inflammation within the joint. And you might ask, well, how does that cause wobbliness. Mm. Well, the joints themselves are very closely aligned with the spinal cord. So anytime a joint is inflamed, um, it gets bigger because it produces more fluid and more inflammatory proteins in there. And as a result, the big joint now squashes the spinal cord, just like with the developmental disease, the bones tend to squish the spinal cord. So we've actually got two different types of so-called wobblers, the younger um, group and then the older group with the arthritis. Oh my gosh. It's really interesting that you should say about the two-year-old because that's that's the age of the horse that our follower is worried about right. her horse yep. having wobblers. Um, okay. and, and she put a video on of, of the horse trotting round on a lunge line and you could clearly see the, the back legs. He's just struggling and it's it's so small. It's such a mm. small amount. And, and mm. I guess at that point, it, it must be tricky for you working out whether a horse has wobblers or whether it's lame because of other reasons. Yep, absolutely. And so there's a number of different diagnostic tests that we do to try and work out what's going on, because especially with youngsters and particular ones that aren't handled or aren't broken in, it can be quite difficult um, to assess some of these things because they are all excitable and you're trying to look for subtle things. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, I would suggest um, to your um, follower that they have their vet examine the horse because that's always step one. Um, and usually we're able to differentiate between an ataxic, so a wobbly horse, and a lame horse. And the reason being that what I was taught at vet school is the lame horse is consistently lame. So each time the lame leg hits the ground, for example, it's the same each time. Whereas because the horse with the wobbliness doesn't actually know for the most part where its legs are, it can it's not consistent. So one time it might put its leg there, and then the next time it might put it somewhere else. So it's an inconsistent leg placement. Mm. Um, and that's one of the key starting points to try and differentiate between the, um, the ataxic horse and the lame horse. Um, once you've then decided that it's ataxic, so incoordinated, we actually perform what's called a neurologic exam. Um, and effectively what that's doing is asking the horse to do progressively more difficult movements so those that require more strength and more coordination um, so that we can see how severely affected they might be. Hmm. Gosh, how would you do the, the diagnostic test, the, the, the imagery test? So once you've decided that a horse is 
ataxic after the neurologic exam, then you can go on and do additional diagnostic tests. But without doing the neurologic exam, you can't really interpret the results of your diagnostic tests because there are some things that we see, for example, on x-rays that might look very abnormal, but if the horse is completely normal, then they're probably not relevant. Hmm. Okay, so that, sorry, the neurological test isn't yes. with a machine, it's just no, by it's, your eyes? It's, oh. it, it's your eyes, yes, absolutely. So it it's, um, doesn't take a huge amount of time, we just need a flat surface and a hill, um, and our eyes and our, well, I guess a little bit of strength. So um, Effectively, we ask the horse to walk up and down in front of us in a straight line and we look at them from behind and from the side and we're looking for foot placement, whether they're doing any of that tripping, for example. And then we ask them to do some circles, um, perhaps some serpentines. We ask them to back up um, and all of those are increasingly harder tests for them if they have any evidence of incoordination. Mm. Um, weakness can also go along with the incoordination. Um, and so um, some of your followers might have seen their vets pulling on the horse's tail. Um, and that's a test called a tail pull. Um, and that assesses the strength of the musculature and also the horse's ability to put its legs back in place once I've pulled it to the side. So another test of coordination. Mm. Now, um, what we don't want is we don't want everybody going and pulling their horse's tails no. to see if they can get it moving. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is one of those things that, um, although it's a very, very good test, so the whole neurologic exam, it's one of those things that you have to be very experienced to, to know how to interpret what you're feeling. Um, because I can pull a horse over quite easily, even though I'm quite small, um, if his leg is in the air, for example, because he doesn't have anything that he can push, push against me with. So mm. you need to know exactly what you're doing and you need to have done loads and loads of normal horses so that when you test an abnormal horse, you know the difference between the two. Mm, that's true. Well, see, if I pulled Blackjack's tail, he'd probably just stand still and see what you're doing. You're, <laughs> you're being ridiculous now. <laughs> so are, are there any other key signs that we can look for um, so we can put them all together before we find the vet? Uh, there's not really any key signs. I think what what people do find in horses that are, by, are being ridden um, and are um, perhaps being asked to do more and more complex movements, so moving through the dressage levels, for example, mm. is that the horses are just struggling to do something that perhaps for that level of training they should feel like they should be able to do. And that's probably because the horses are just finding that coordination and the strength a little bit more challenging. So although just looking at the horse, that might not be abnormal, actually um, to have a trained observer look at the horse from a neurologic standpoint, it might actually be neurologic. Which means that surely that's limited with what we can do. If it's if it's the fact that the brain isn't telling the legs what to do properly, can we? The, fix the brain that? is actually the brain is actually fine. Oh. Um, it's the spinal cord itself um, which is in control of all these messages. Um, but you're right. You know, basically the brain and the spinal cord are made up of the same type of tissue, um, and we all know that if you've got spinal cord damage, then it's typically irreversible. Um, but the nice thing about wobblers is that there are things that we can do depending on the type of wobblers. So the young horse versus the old horse. Um, we can't cure all of them and we can't make dramatic changes. But in many situations, we can um, cause a significant improvement to the point where the horse can actually be a useful competition horse. 
wow, it can even be a competition horse. That surprises me because mm-hmm. I'd say it's quite a big risk anybody getting on a horse that can't move his legs properly. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I never tell a client the horse is safe to ride because no horse is ever safe to ride. That's, you know, we all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. You you don't want a horse that's incoordinated going around badminton, for mm. example. Um, so we always do these treatments in conjunction with re, re-examinations. Um, so we perform our neurology exams several times over a um, several month period after we've instituted a specific treatment um, and we base our recommendations on whether we believe the horse has improved rather than the owner. That's interesting and so I'm guessing is there well first of all could you could you share with us the treatments of how we do try to make them better? Yeah, so the first thing, I guess, is to get the diagnosis right, um, because as we've said, although wobblers is a descriptive term, there are several different disorders that can cause the signs that we see. Um, and we're actually quite lucky in the UK and Europe in that we can take a whole lot of diseases off the list because they don't occur here. So diseases like West Nile virus, rabies, um, all these other viral diseases can cause wobbliness in, in particular in horses in America. So mm. we don't need to worry about that, <laughs> at least at the moment. <laughs> um, so the first thing is to get the neurologic exam performed. Um, and if it is abnormal, then the area that is typically affected is the neck. Um, So it's the vertebrae in the neck that that are abnormal. And the best um, starting point as far as trying to diagnose whether there's a problem with the vertebrae in the neck is to take x-rays. And that's just like any other, um, you know, a problem with the leg, for example, you'd either x-ray or ultrasound if you thought it had a soft tissue problem. Mm. So we start by doing the x-rays and getting good quality x-rays, especially of a big warm blood, is usually something that needs to be done in a big hospital because the portable x-rays, although they're very good for things like the legs, they're not brilliant for getting excellent quality images of the of the neck. And, and we really want excellent quality images of, of the neck if we're going to make these diagnoses. So we take x-rays and we look for a number of different things. So with the um, developmental disease, we actually look to see what the vertebrae look like. So do they look abnormally deformed? Um, and so are there specific changes that we know are associated with this condition? Um, and we also, because we can't actually see the spinal cord um, on x-rays, we can only see the area where the spinal cord lives because of the spinal cord is soft tissue and x-rays only show up bony changes so we can see where the spinal cord is and we can actually do a measurement that is effectively called a minimal sagittal ratio and that gives us an idea of whether the spinal cord is compressed or not it's not a perfect test but it's the best test that we have available um, when we've just got x-rays to look at so we look for changes in the bone and changes in the air um, the dimensions of where the spinal cord would run And so that's how we tend to make the diagnosis of the the, uh, developmental disorder. Wow. Is this something that a horse can get at a later stage due to how he's being ridden? No. Okay. No, no, you you can't make a horse have these problems. They might be exacerbated by the way that we ride horses, because if you imagine if a horse doesn't have to do much in its life, it's probably not going to get dramatic arthritis anywhere in its body until quite late um, in its life. Mm. But we are asking these horses to be athletic, especially if they've got um, required to do quite a lot of collection. It does put a lot of stress on the on the joints in the neck. Um, and so we potentially are exacerbating 
the disorder, but we're certainly not, you know, there's nothing that we're doing specifically to make these horses um, have arthritis or developmental diseases. Oh, that's good. It's good in one way that it's not our fault. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's definitely not our fault. Um, and when we're thinking about the second type, which is the arthritis in the neck, again, x-rays are the best way to assess this. And we look for bony changes around the joint because, again, joints are soft tissue effectively. Um, so we can't see in the joint itself um, but we can see the, the reaction in the bone around that. And we've got a grading system that assesses um, whether or not um, they might be um, impacting on the spinal cord. And if they are impacting, what can you do? Yeah, so um, one step which um, we've started doing at BMW in the last couple of months is actually to do further diagnostics. So what we've done so far with our diagnostics is to take x-rays mm. um, and you can go one step further which is a big deal for many clients because it does require a general anesthetic which we know is a big deal for horses but we anesthetize the horses and then we do what's called computed tomography or CT um, and what that does is instead of taking x-rays which are 2D, so two-dimensional image, we basically take lots and lots of slices through the bones and the computer can reconstruct them. So we've got a three. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. ...dimensional model um, of the horse's neck. We also combine that with what's called a myelogram. So if you imagine the spinal cord is a hosepipe, say, around the spinal cord is fluid um, and, we can, and, and a space. Um, and if there's something that's compressing that area, that space gets narrowed. So we can actually inject a material that shows up um, on our um, CT. And if that material is narrower in various places, then we know that's the site where the spinal cord is getting compressed. 
Um, so, for example, we did one of those yesterday, um, and it showed quite clearly that at the junction between the sixth and seventh vertebra in the horse's neck, there was an area that was compressed. Oh, no. The poor lady yeah. that owns that yeah. horse. Yeah. Well, actually, I think this horse has quite a good prognosis because I do think we can do something to treat many of the horses. But getting that extra bit of information um, has, I think, been very useful to allow us to determine um, how good the response to treatment might be. It's mm. very clever, Imogen. This <laughs> I is... can't take credit. <laughs> <laughs> this is why it's important to have insurance with your horse as well, though, so that if anything does happen, you can always yep. go to you and 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 get the diagnosis. Because I think without that, it's, you can't yeah. tell. No, it's it's it's. You can you can only go so far with your eyes, unfortunately, um, and uh, the X-rays themselves do help. Um, but we are finding more and more that this CT myelogram um, is giving us lots of information. But in many situations, these horses, um, either for, for whatever reason, the owner doesn't think that that's the appropriate test to do because general anaesthetic does involve a risk for horses. Mm. Um, so it's not that we have to do that test. It's just another test that we can now add to give us even more information. Because mm, I guess older horses is a bigger risk for them to go into general anaesthetic, is there? Uh, yes and no. So there's been quite a number of studies looking at anaesthetic risk in um, horses of various different ages. Um, and actually, it's more associated with the disease for which they're being anaesthetized rather than age itself. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So in most of the time where, you know, we're anaesthetizing horses that are perhaps 12 to 15 rather than, you know, 25 to 30. So, um, but um, as long as they're healthy um, and, and they're strong enough to stand up after the anaesthetic, that's usually the key thing. Mm. Okay. So you've got a poor horse that is suffering mm. from this mm. Um, mm. and their vertebrae is have extra, the vertebrae has extra pressure put on it. Um, yep. What can we do to then help that horse? So the the easiest type of treatment is for the arthritis um, horses. Um, and arthritis in any joint is just inflammation. So what we need to do is treat the inflammation. What we do know is that drugs like Bute or Flinixin don't really seem to help these horses much at all. So we actually need to specifically treat the joint rather than treat the whole horse. Mm. Um, and just like horses with hock arthritis or fetlock arthritis, we actually um, put steroids directly into the joint um, between each vertebra. Um, and that seems to help the horse's quite dramatically. So it decreases any pain that might be associated with the arthritis. And because the inflammation is decreased, the joint actually, at least we believe, shrinks in size because it's no longer distended. And therefore, it's no longer putting pressure on the spinal cord. So the spinal cord can actually not necessarily regenerate, but recover. Um, and that's how the horses can, over a period of months, return actually to being almost normal that's incredible and it only takes months you'd expect years for that to happen. you would expect years and <laughs> and when i when i have horses that aren't responding in that time period I, I i like to remind my clients that you know if it was you or i that had spinal cord damage we'd get the rest of our lives to get over it mm. um so we do need to allow these horses time but it tends to be that we see um the most dramatic improvement in a period of um 
up to sort of four to six months. So I had a horse that I looked at yesterday, um, who is the most delightful horse. Um, and she was, she was a probably almost a grade four ataxic when I saw her for the first time three months ago. Um, and we treated her, um, and her first recheck after a month, she wasn't doing any better really but when I saw her yesterday she was markedly improved and so that's in three months so I think that um, you know it's always always nice to see even the really severely ones um, improve now she's not in my opinion safe to ride yet but she's safe to go out in a field and enjoy her life and she's not in pain that's the main she thing. doesn't appear to be no mm. exactly Oh, okay. Well, that's good. So I'm glad that the neck arthritis can be fixed. Is there anything yes. that we could do to support your your treatment? Yeah, there's. we tend to give the horses vitamin E, um, which is a general antioxidant. Um, so the damage that's in the spinal cord is associated with it being compressed. Um, and to deal with any damage almost anywhere in the body, um, the, the body's response is um, to provide antioxidants. And it's not that these horses are necessarily deficient in vitamin E because Pretty much all diets that have any sort of green feed, so grass or hay, will have plenty of vitamin E. But we know that if we give a, a, a significantly higher dose than what they would normally get, um, that can certainly um, help with uh, the repair process. Okay, and, and is the horse on box rest at this point, or should we be walking them out? Do they need to keep their heads no, stretched? Yeah, no, there doesn't. So the first 24 hours after they get the injection, we like their necks to them not to put their head down just so that we can sort of resolve the inflammation, at least in the short term. So we have their food and water um, from a height. Um, and then for the week after the injection, they then go out into a field and just kind of do whatever they want. Um, and then they can start, and this is very much dependent on how severely wobbly they were to start with um, but if they were only relatively mildly affected they can start being exercised after a week um, and what we would suggest is long and low because um, that seems to put the uh, least pressure um, on the joints in in the ver vertebra um, and then we also suggest um, combining that with a physiotherapist um, who can help with um, with the rehab process mm. and a physiotherapist who's qualified who's insured who knows what they're doing yeah. because what you don't yeah. want is to pick somebody that you don't know if they've got any qualifications they then put more pressure on the spinal cord that you're yes. trying to fix <laughs> exactly no yeah. that's a very a very good point and um, the best physios will always ask for our report or discuss things with us um, in in person over the phone so um, yeah absolutely good point Oh, well, that's good that you guys talk to each other because I remember, no, no, <laughs> seriously, try. because, I, you know, I remember speaking to um, a lovely physiotherapist who worked with the New Zealand Olympic team. And mm -hmm. she said that, you know, when they, when the, these amazing riders, um, they have a team around their horses and the physio talks to the vet that talks to the farrier and everybody connects with each other. And sometimes I find at our amateur level, Imogen, our yeah. guys don't talk to each other and we all get the individual reports. I've started now asking for the reports from my farrier, from the physio, from the vet, yeah. but I'm still finding I can't quite get them to talk to each other yet. <laughs> ah, that's a shame. It's, it is so important because, you know, if we only all treat our little area, we're not treating the horses as a horse. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Keep pushing for that. I think it's time as well. You know, I understand they have it a lot is. of horses to look after, and if they, they yeah. have enough, you guys have enough paperwork to do, to then have to be <laughs> phoning everybody. But at the very least, what I do now is I collect all the reports and I send yeah. them all to the vet so they have a copy of everything. 
Yeah, that's perfect. For the records. Okay. Well, well, that's good news that the, the poor little horses can be fixed um, yeah. for the neck arthritis. But the ataxia, if they yeah. have that, what, what, what can we do? Yeah, so the neck arthritis, we're not actually fixing the arthritis, we're managing it. Um, oh. And so horses will potentially need repeated injections after perhaps a year or 18 months, but we can continue to do that for a good period of time. So it's not a completely reversible disease, but we know we can manage the signs really effectively. Mm. Um, the horses that have the developmental disease, so their vertebra are sort of abnormally formed, they tend to be a bit more of a challenge. Um, and there's a number of different things that are being tried, um, which vary from fairly non-invasive to surgery. Um, and it very much depends on the finding in each individual horse. So the disease itself is what we call multifactorial in cause, in that it's got lots of different contributors. Um, and so sometimes managing one of those contributors can help minimize either the risk of the horse developing the disease or minimize the um, progression of it. So, for example, um, genetics we know plays um, a role, but we don't know if we cross a wobbler with a wobbler, we get a wobbler. So you can't oh. really do that. Mm. Um, but there is, a, like many diseases, now that we're getting more and more of an ability to test um, different genes, we know there's a genetic basis. What we do see is that we see the signs typically in very rapidly growing youngsters. Um, and so one of the things that has been designed is, I guess the best way to describe it is dietary restriction. So this is when you would start to see perhaps a foal or a weanling start to have signs. So on big stud farms, they're very aware of this disorder. And so they closely watch their, their youngsters. Um, and if you took some x-rays and were concerned what the bones looked like, at that point, you're not starving the horse but you're restricting things like protein um, and various different things like, um, in particular, zinc and copper. Um, and this clearly has to be done in conjunction with a vet and mm. a nutritionist so they are allowed, you know, they're able to continue to grow. Um, but there are some, and it's, I can't give you percentages, but there are some horses that do either stop the progression of the disease um, with that treatment um, or at least improve sufficiently that they can go on perhaps to be a useful horse. So um, the sort of dietary restriction is, is one. That's amazing. Um, it is amazing, mm -hmm. yeah. It is incredible. Very occasionally these horses do respond to medication of their joints and it's not necessarily because they've got arthritis. Um, it's just because some of the joints are because they're between abnormally formed vertebra, they might actually have some inflammation in there. Um, but that, that's relatively uncommon. Um, what is, um, what does occur sometimes, and this is probably done more in America than over here, although there are surgeons in the UK that will perform the surgery, is that you can actually perform a surgery which essentially fuses um, vertebra that are next to each other, so adjacent vertebra. So if you have vertebra that are malformed and as a result they're pressing on the spinal cord, you can decrease the pressure on the spinal cord by essentially fixing those vertebra in a position where they're not pressing on the spinal cord, if that makes sense. That's very clever. 
It is very yeah. clever. So it was uh, it was way back when it, uh, there was a horse in the US who was a triple crown winner, I believe. I'm hoping I'm right there, called <laughs> Seattle Slough. Um, and Seattle Slough is an incredibly famous horse that developed quite severe clinical signs of, of being a wobbler. Um, and um, he had this surgery done and he lived well into his 20s. Um, so it was sufficient for him to be able to go on and live a, a very good life as a breeding stallion. Um, and we know that it can improve horses, um, but we need we can only do the surgery if we have as much information as possible. So these are the sorts of horses that we would really um, recommend what's called the, the myelogram, whether it's just with plain x-rays or, or the CT, just to know um, where the where the vertebra need to be fused it's interesting that that horse went on to become a breeding stallion because mm, yeah. if you talk about the genes surely Absolutely. maybe you shouldn't, yeah, you shouldn't have been well bred. this is the thing about uh, genetics is that uh, you can make all the recommendations in the world but at the same time <laughs> as i said we we don't know whether you breed a wobbler with a wobbler you get a wobbler mm. um, so it's it it is multifactorial and it might be that only two percent of the disease is associated with genetics it's just that that's the easiest thing to test and therefore you know we hang our hat on that so but yeah it is an interesting uh, moral question <laughs> so really then when you're looking at breeding your horse it's 50 50 whether you could get a wobbler or not you really don't have any idea you can't plan for it or prepare for it no you can't plan for it i guess if you're getting a pony you're very unlikely to have a wobbler it really is a disease that we tend to see in bigger horses so um, warm bloods, thoroughbreds, um, those sorts of things. Um, and that probably is associated with the fact that they do grow quite rapidly, mm. um, at least for the developmental one. Any horse can get arthritis in its neck, of course, um, but it tends to be that the, um, in particular the warm bloods are asked to go in an outline um, whereby they might be putting more pressure um, on, on the vertebra in their neck. And as a result, the arthritis might have more implications for them. Um, and, and as a result, they we might see signs in those. And just to confirm, Imogen, it's not something that can happen from having another injury. So let's say you've got a like blackjack's got an injury on his right leg. So yeah. I'm guessing he can't then suddenly get wobblers years later by overcompensating. No, no that's that, it is a really good question. And, and interestingly, with um, with various different um, wobblers syndromes. Sometimes there is a traumatic incident um, that you can sort of go back to and say, well, I, we started seeing signs after it fell over a fence or whatever. Mm. But my question is always, well, why did it fall over the fence in the first place? Mm. Was it already uncoordinated and therefore fell down? Um, and then we're just seeing worse signs. Um, so, you know, trauma itself can cause wobbliness, um, but it doesn't cause the signs, you know, the, the classic wobbler that we've been talking about. Right. Just like you can get neck arthritis from other things, but it might not necessarily mean that they've got wobblers. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the, the arthritis can occur in any joint in the body. If you get it in a, a neck joint, it may or may not impact on the spinal cord. If it doesn't impact on the spinal cord, then it might just be that the horse has a sore neck rather than it actually being a wobbler. So just if we could quickly touch on the neck arthritis that isn't mm. wobblers, um, are there any ways that we can prevent our horses from getting that? 
Yeah, so neck arthritis is one of those things that we don't really know too much about. We know how to treat it, um, but we don't really know how it develops. So as far as prevention goes, there are loads and loads of different supplements on the market that are marketed as, you know, um, joint soothers and joint medications and those sorts of things. And although the science behind them is okay Mm. in that theoretically the compounds that are contained in these supplements should have the effect on the cells that we want them to, actually utilising them in horses um, hasn't been well studied. And so it's what's called anecdotal evidence. So you've told me that your horse responded really nicely, but then somebody else tells me that their horse didn't respond very well at all. Mm. Um, so it, 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 we don't have sufficient evidence in most cases to say you should try this supplement. The good thing about most supplements um, is that they're usually not going to do any harm apart from to your wallet. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm I'm a bit or oh, I'm a bit cynical when it comes to all these supplements <laughs> because as a product developer myself years ago, I know that a lot of it is a good old marketing ploy and I, I do like to see <laughs> scientific evidence behind Absolutely. things. And yeah. also, you know, it's great after the fact when you found out that your horse does have arthritis um, mm. to have the, the added supplements that they need to make them feel more comfortable. But what can we do before the fact, before they get mm. arthritis? You know, should we be stretching our horses more? Should we not be putting too much pressure on their necks when you're doing your flexions from right to left? You don't want to be yanking mm. the horse's head from side to side. Yeah, no idea is oh. the honest answer <laughs> to that. Um, it, you know, arthritis is a wear and tear disease so wear and tear will cause this um and so that you know unless you have your horse standing still for its entire life there is going to be wear and tear on the joints um so there you know in my opinion at least there's nothing really that you can do to your horse to make things worse um although a horse that is never worked in an outline and just potters along and is never worked on hard surfaces, for example, is less likely to get arthritis full stop in its body. Mm. But most horses, that's not what we want them to do. You know, we want them to do what what we want them to do. Mm. Um, and so that's just not not a reality. And we will learn more and more about arthritis in in general in horses over the years. Um, but at the moment, um, there's nothing that I know of that we can say if you don't do this, your horse won't get arthritis. This might sound crazy, Imogen, but you do, do the vets and human doctors work well together? Because some of these <laughs> things, I'm thinking, I swear I have arthritis in my hands yeah, from yeah. riding all the time. Do you, are, there, yeah. are there things that you guys share advice on? Yeah, interestingly, my mum's a doctor, so ah. <laughs> we, we do have chats periodically. Um, interestingly, I think that many of the ideas that we have for research in horses, um, we've, we get from research in people. So, you know, some someone might be trying um, treatment X for disease Y in people, and we're like, well, we've got quite a similar disease in horses. What about we try this? Mm. Um, and um, so, but communication-wise, uh, yes and no. I think that there, there's there's a concept called one medicine, um, and that is basically anyone who's involved in treatment of animals um, or people can kind of speak a common language and should all be working to, to the same good. And it's really come from the responsible use of antibiotics and those sorts of things. But it is just as relevant um, in, um, in other diseases. Um, and I've been to a number of different conferences over the last few years whereby um, their veterinary conferences 
but they bring in a, um, a physician, so a human doctor, um, to, to give talks um, and to look at sort of comparative medicine. So I don't think on a day-to-day basis there's much in the way of communication, but um, we do certainly learn from each other. And there are diseases in um, horses that um, there's no natural model for, um, apart from in horses, um, for human diseases. So um, in that situation, it does become really important that vets and humans communicate. Mm. Well, yeah, because I noticed the other day, some of the antibiotics that are on the market for humans are also used mm. for by vets. Yep, absolutely. And that's one of the key um, things that we need to be very careful of as vets is that um, we need to prioritise um, using antibiotics that we know aren't essential for human health, um, even though they're available to us. We shouldn't just use them because we can. We mm-hmm. should only ever use them because we really need to, because there are lots of other antibiotics that we can use that aren't what are known as essential to human health. Oh, it's such a big minefield. <laughs> and there's is. so much to take in and, um, and and also so much to learn as well with with new research that we still yep. need to be doing, Imogen. We certainly do. (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about? I think we've covered most of the bases. I guess the key points are that um, wobblers is just a general term um, and it can be due to any any disorder of the spinal cord. But the two key um, diseases that we see are the developmental young horse problem and then the older horse arthritis problem. And, and uh, the treatments and the diagnostics can, can be quite different. So it's really important to, to get your vet um, to, to assess your horse if you're worried. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and no doubt uh, our, our poor follower who might be struggling yeah. with wobblers is going to be contacting her vet right now. I hope so. <laughs> have a chat. And uh, we'll all be going around, going down, to, going down to our horses, getting them to trot in a line saying, are you falling over anything? Are you okay? Um, but if we'd like any more information, we can always follow you on Twitter. You're at BW Equine Vets and you're on Facebook and Instagram and you've got a website as well. So um, Imogen Johns, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Imogen's also written a great fact sheet about wobblers and neck arthritis under the education hub of our website. If you just head to horsehour.co.uk while you're there, you can listen to all previous episodes of the Horse Hour podcast. And if you're listening on iTunes and Acast, then we'd love a little review if you get time um, because it really helps us stay in the iTunes charts. And I am forever grateful. I hope you've had a really good week with your horse. Um, Enjoy horse horse hour this evening between eight and nine hashtag horse hour on twitter where you can get involved in conversations from other equestrians from all over the world i hope you've had a really good week with your horse and i'll speak to you soon you've been listening to horse hour join the community on twitter mondays 8 p.m uk time 3 p.m eastern by using the hashtag horse hour follow amy at amy stevenson one and subscribe to us on acast itunes stitcher and Player FM.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.